Our scripture lesson comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if my brother or sister sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, the Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all his possessions and payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that same slave, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat, he said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him into prison until he could pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he could pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Now, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and redeemer. Imagine the possibilities the risks, and yes, even the failures, if we said yes, boldly and without hesitation, to everything. Yes, let's do that. Yes, let's try. Yes, and what if? Perhaps this sounds a little familiar to some of you. Many of us experience this exercise in saying yes and this past Worshipful Wednesday when Andy, our Director of Family Faith Formation, led us in a really fun intergenerational activity around the theology of improvisation or improv comedy. <laughs> now I know what you're thinking, because I was hesitant too. There is no way I'm getting up in front of everyone and thinking on my toes, because I'm sure that whatever comes out of my mouth will sound idiotic. Give me a script and let me rehearse. And yet we did it. And we laughed and we laughed and there were neighing horses and we laughed and we really enjoyed ourselves. There were talking horses, you're looking at him over here. 
And there were turnip biofuel and frog catchers and devil monkeys and time-traveling cassette videos and more. And none of that probably sounds like anything you've ever heard of unless you were there. But let me back up. Perhaps you're familiar with improv techniques or you've even seen an improv troupe perform before. But let me define this yes and thinking a little bit more. Yes and is a rule of thumb in improvisational comedy that suggests that an improviser should accept what another improviser has stated. This is the yes. And then expand on that line of thinking. This is the and part. As long as it doesn't put you in harm's way. It's an exercise in saying yes, no matter how crazy, and taking an opportunity and seeing how it can grow and morph despite fear and the potential for failure. In fact, failure is seen in a positive light. Instead of rejecting failure or mistakes, how can they be used as opportunities to do something different? And the word no is not allowed. So anything is possible. Every contribution made by each person is accepted and affirmed and then expands on that line of thinking so that something organic grows that everyone helps build. So for example, one person might start a story by saying, let's go to the beach. Do you want to go to the beach today? Next person will affirm this and add on, yes, let's go to the beach and let's build sandcastles. The next person might say something like, let's go to the beach and build sandcastles so big it can be seen from outer space and aliens might come vacation here with us. So it gets a bit crazy. A new story comes about. I like to think of it as an exercise, perhaps in allowing the Holy Spirit to flow and move in creative, unexpected ways and connect you with those around you in relationship. So it can be exciting and terrifying and downright funny to see what occurs when you're willing to say yes. It opens doors, embraces vulnerability, and leads down paths we may never have imagined. And it's also something that we see Jesus subscribing to time and again. Jesus says yes when the rest of the world would say no. So Peter has come to Jesus who is teaching these long discourses and he says, Lord, if one of my brothers or sisters sins against me, how often do I forgive them? Seven times. Surely that's enough, right? Jesus replies, yes, and then you will forgive again and again. It might be seven times. It might be 77 times. The name of this game is called Unlimited Forgiveness. Say yes and see what happens. I wonder if Peter and the disciples laughed uneasily or just stood there in shocked silence. And Jesus sees their uneasy stares, and so he launches into this parable in typical Jesus fashion to illustrate what God's realm is really like, which is counter to anything they can understand. So Jesus says, imagine that a king is calling up his servants to settle his accounts, trying to get his books in order, and he begins by calling up the slave with the largest debt. Now this slave owes 10,000 talents. I can't overemphasize how big this is. It's unfathomable. It is the largest number in Greek, 
and equates to 100 million days of labor for the typical day laborer. For us, it would mean something like hundreds of billions of dollars, an amount that we can barely wrap our minds around. We don't know how this guy spent this money, but it's clear that there's no way he could ever repay it. It's simply impossible. So the king orders him sold with his wife and children and everything they own, but even this will hardly make a dent in the debt he owes. He is going to lose everything and his failure also affects his family. It's not unlike medical debts for many in our country today who are crippled by the weight of such burdens. So the slave, he falls before the ruler and he begs for patience and time to repay his debt. We should expect that he will be thrown into jail. But unexpectedly, the king responds, Yes, I will release you, and you are forgiven all your debts. You are free and clear. And just like that, the slave walks out a new man. Well, I like to imagine the disciples' jaws have dropped to the floor. It's unheard of, this extravagant grace. Why would the king, to do, why would the king do such a thing? He gains seemingly nothing from such compassion. In fact, he's lost a whole lot. But the story is far from over. A minute later, the debt-free slave comes upon a fellow slave who owes him 100 denarii, which is about three to four months' worth of wages, peanuts compared to what the first slave owed the king. And so in another shocking twist, the debt-free slave demands repayment violently, seizing the other's throat, somehow forgetting the massive grace just given him. And so in the exact same words that he had used previously with the king, the fellow slave says, have patience with me and I will repay you. His answer should be clear and we should expect the slave to say, yes, and as the king did. But his heart is hardened and exclaiming no, he throws his companion into prison until the debt could be repaid. But you see, the king did gain something massive from his extravagant forgiveness. It was not monetary, it was not tangible, but a power that bound him to his people far more than money could. All of his slaves knew what had transpired and their loyalty and respect multiplied for their ruler. Theologian Stanley Saunders writes, the king's stupendous act of mercy is neither a private matter or an act of consequences for his, this slave alone. Wiping this debt off the books has implications for everyone down the pyramid, a fact certainly noted by all the clients of this servant. The king effectively inaugurates a regime of financial amnesty, a jubilee, not only for one slave, but for everyone in his debt. So we see a new transformative realm enacted with the king's compassionate action through forgiveness. They saw that their king cared and wanted them to thrive and have a good life. Forgiveness became transformative and restorative, both for the people and the ruler, and they were bound together. The ruler's yes and 
became the new paradigm by which they all would live. It's here that we see God's kingdom breaking in, not just in an individual, but in a community. But witnessing this massive injustice from the debt-free slave, the other slaves run to the king in distress and tell of the incident that just took place. Outraged, the king reverses his decision and throws the slave in prison and orders him tortured for not showing the same mercy he was first offered. And so he receives the first punishment after all. It's a hard parable to swallow. And it probably feels like whiplash with every twist and turn that's been taken, especially the end. But we do well to read this parable not as an allegory and assign God as the king in this tale. For this violent ending does not align with God's nature. God always responds in love and offers unlimited forgiveness. But we all bear wounds that beg for forgiveness. Wounds that fail to heal when we can't or won't say yes and. And so they fester instead. But what is forgiveness? I like this definition by Presbyterian minister and writer Marjorie Thompson. She writes, To forgive is to make a conscious choice to release the person who has wounded us from the sentence of our judgment, however justified that judgment may be. It represents a choice to leave behind our resentment and desire for retribution, however fair such punishment may seem. Forgiveness means the power of the original wound's power to hold us trapped is broken. I'll say that again. Forgiveness means the power of the original wound's power to hold us trapped is broken. And so with God's help, with the Holy Spirit and Christ beside us, we can choose to break out of the cycle of anger and shame or fear and embrace healing forgiveness for it is powerful and it's something that God expects us to do since God's life is based in love and forgiveness and mercy it's not easy it's not simple I don't need to tell you this but it is life-giving and perhaps I'd like to think even contagious if we embrace forgiveness as the part of the life of faith that we are called to harness and embody too. So where in your own life do you need to examine your own wounds and seek to offer or to receive forgiveness? Pastor Elizabeth Milford writes in The Hard Work of Forgiveness that we should look to the Amish community for sincere and real ways forgiveness is enacted. She writes, typically when we think of the Amish, our first images are of buggies and quilts, jams and barn, raving, barn raisings, or perhaps what we've gleaned from a reality TV series. But an even better marker of Amish life and culture is seen in their practice of faith. Amish people are likely to say that they are simply trying to be obedient to Jesus Christ, who commanded his followers to do so many peculiar things, such as love, bless, and forgive their enemies. This is not a picture of Amish life that can easily be reproduced on a postcard from Amish country. In fact, it can only be painted in the grit and grim of daily life. On October 2nd, 2006, 
Tragedy came to Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, as a gunman entered the local school, leading to a hostage situation that killed five schoolgirls and left five others seriously wounded. It was a devastating time that rocked this small, close-knit community and brought about intense media coverage at that time. Almost as shocking as the violence, though, was the response from the families and the community of the victims. Even as outsiders were responding with compassion for the Amish community in the wake of the shootings, the Amish themselves were doing another kind of work. Softly, subtly, and quietly, they were beginning the difficult task of forgiveness. Within a few hours of the shooting, some Amish people were already reaching out to the killer's family. Some went to the gunman's wife, children, and extended family, offering words of sympathy and love and forgiveness. As cameras and bright lights shone in field interviews and questions came from TV hosts, the refrain was similar. The Amish insisted that they forgive the gunman almost immediately. A few days later, the community showed up at the gunman's funeral and even reached out with financial support for his family. Several weeks later, they met with his wife and other members of his family at a local firehouse. In each of these and the relationship-building instances that followed, the Amish community modeled an authentic and powerful witness of what forgiveness looks like. It almost sounds too good to be true, inconceivable to even those who consider themselves faithful Christians. But they said yes and time and again to forgiveness. We are only human, and looking at our wounds is painful. There's no doubt. But the work of forgiving is necessary, even though it is painful, and God's call to us to embrace forgiveness, it will be difficult. Jesus' parable seems daunting, but yet speaks to the nature of our God who shows us time and again an unending, limitless forgiveness and grace. We need this parable desperately in a world that seems wrought with anger, hatred, and fear, and where forgiveness and reconciliation are rare commodities. Maybe we say yes and to just one opportunity at a time, then seven, and then 70 times seven. Maybe it is possible if we look to the one that first forgave us. Maybe we, little by little, saying yes and, can move into the ways of God's mercy, God's love, and God's unlimited grace. Amen. As we gather our hearts together as one in prayer before God, I hope that you will pray with me. When you hear me pray, God, in your mercy, please respond, hear our prayer. Let us try that. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Let us pray. Oh God, your unfailing love has been the source of our strength. Even when we are less than gracious and are lacking in mercy, you love us still. Help us to meet our friends, our families, our neighbors, and yet even our enemies in their need, and offer our best 
in your name. In your infinite love, you have had compassion on us, and you have heard our cries. Because of your faithful love and mercy, we bring our concerns to you, O God. So God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the church in every form and fashion that gathers in your name this day, that it would be an instrument of your love, your forgiveness, and your grace, and the divisions that separate us and that create the fractures that keep your church from your call to be the one body of Christ. Heal the brokenness of your church that she might heal the brokenness of our world. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for the global community you have created us to be, that we would learn to live for each other in peace and cooperation and share collective responsibility for the good of all. God, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We pray for our local community here in Knoxville. We pray for the Volunteer Ministry Center, for the Knox Area Rescue Mission, for our fish food pantry, for Justice Knox, for Westminster, Aaron, Sequoia Hills, and Second Presbyterian Churches. We pray for Family Promise and for the Ukirk Campus Ministry at the University of Tennessee. Help us each be the hands and feet of Christ here in the heart of Knoxville and beyond. God, in your mercy. We pray for the church and all our church family, for those who suffer in mind, body, spirit, and soul. We pray especially this morning for Libba and Linda and Phyllis and Paulette. Wrap your arms around them in love and help us, the church, be for them the embodiment of Christ in their lives and in their need. Be with those we have named aloud, but also be with those that we now say in the stillness of our hearts. God, in your mercy. By the work of your Spirit, we know you hear us and are always with us as we pray in the name of the one who taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom the power and the glory forever. Amen. God gives to us out of abundance. So as we continue our worship, let us do the same, offering who we are and what we have given to us by the blessing of God. Let us bring our time, our talents, our lives, and our offerings. 